Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We have Bernie and Nancy Pelosi. We have them all. They're all trying to say, how dare you take him out that way? You should get permission from Congress. You should come in and tell us what you want to do. Just as we were led into Vietnam and Iraq by lies, the Trump administration is misleading us on Iran. If there was an imminent threat, that required this extraordinary action, we're owed an explanation. And when one American life was lost at the hands of Iranian-backed militias just a few short weeks ago, President Trump launched the first air strikes. One of the messages we received from the briefers was, do not debate, do not discuss the issue of the appropriateness of further military intervention against Iran. And that if you do, you'll be emboldening Iran. To play this game with the poor war powers, that which I think is unconstitutional, is that whether you mean to or not, you're empowering the enemy. I find this insulting and demeaning. I had calls from numerous senators and numerous congressmen and women saying it was the greatest presentation they've ever had. They produced no evidence that would justify this claim, not even in a classified setting. The radical Democrats have never been more extreme than they are right now. They are stone cold crazy. It's stunning. And the president just say, oh, I inform you by reading my tweets. No, that's not the relationship that our founders had in mind. What is the response that the president of the United States should make? And what advances the interests of the United States of America? More and more chaos, more and more instability. We live in a dangerous world. So yes, the House majority can create this temporary cloud over a commander-in-chief if they choose, but they do not get to keep the cloud in place forever. I'm not holding them indefinitely. I'll send them over when I'm ready. And that will probably be soon. They stick together and they're vicious. They're vicious, horrible people. You know, it's interesting, as I'm saying this stuff, you know, they want crime, they want chaos. I'm saying all this stuff and then I say, Gee, now I sort of understand why they hate me, right? The week that was, in about 90 seconds there, the backdrop for everything else happening in politics, including the Democratic primary. Of course, tensions with Iran and the impeding impeachment trial in the Senate are coming at a time when Democratic candidates for president are racing the clock in an effort to sell themselves to primary voters. After all, we're just about three weeks away from the Iowa caucuses, and from there, it's an all-out sprint until March 3rd and Super Tuesday. Joining me to discuss all things in the race for the White House are Osted Herndon, national political reporter for The New York Times. Hi, Osted. Hey, how are you? Good. And Claire Malone, senior political writer at 538. Hey, great to be here. All right. Claire, let's start with you. Politics, of course, is about responding to the moment, and the moment seems to be focused right now on Iran. Yes. So what does this mean for the Democratic primary? It's a really interesting shakeup. I mean, in some ways, I think the conventional wisdom that this is good for Joe Biden is true, right? It's the idea that 
Um, you know, Joe Biden has make, been making the pitch since he got into the race that the reason why you would want to put him in, as his wife Jill said, you might like someone better, but he's the best guy for the job and for the time. And so the fact that he has tons of foreign policy experience, that that's the reason why uh, Barack Obama chose him to be his vice president, he can pull all of that up now and say, look at me, I'd be a steady hand at the till. And you see other people, you know, Buttigieg kind of struggling a little bit to say, well, I served in the military. That's something, right? I was part of these. I was the, you know, literally the troop on the ground during this too long war. I kind of understand the ethos working through the country of we don't want another foreign entanglement. But I do think it's pretty good for Biden. But it also puts Sanders in an interesting position as kind of the, I never voted for the Iraq war. Well, that's what I wanted. I said, if you can talk to that, because it does seem like now we have, we're back to where we kind of have been since 2008 with one side of the Democratic Party who was supportive of the Iraq War and the other side, whether it was Barack Obama, now Bernie Sanders, saying, I was the one who stood up against this terrible decision in Iraq. Yeah, this kind of a bringing back, right? All that was old is new again. And it's bringing back the primary to the place in which it started, in which it was the thought that Joe Biden, the person with the most name recognition, the person at the top of the national polls, would go up against Bernie Sanders, who was leading the kind of progressive insurgent wing, and obviously coming out of a race in 2016 in which he impressed. And uh, Bernie Sanders has tried to use this moment to nationalize the primary, to make it about him versus Joe Biden once again. You have Warren, you have Buttigieg, who look good in Iowa in early states and, and could really complicate those two's path, but what they are both trying to do right now is look at each other and, and a chance to bring it past Iowa and New Hampshire because they know once it gets to Nevada, once it gets to South Carolina, once it gets to California, those are places they feel a little better about and, and they kind of want to make this about the two ideologically rigid poles. Bernie Sanders is doing that with Iran through his kind of anti-war vision, uh, laying out a kind of rigid framework that um, not only is this about this moment, but it's about the United States' willingness for intervention and that uh, the future president should have just a bigger posture towards uh, no holds barred, not, never going in posture, non-interventionist posture, that he is kind of alone in articulating it that clearly. We've seen Elizabeth Warren tried to move right. a little closer to that after um, the death of Soleimani, but he, he's been the one who's been articulating that vision uh, through for, for decades. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, Claire, This the, the Bernie Biden piece of this. I mean, you look at the Democratic Party and you say, this is a party that is built on a base of women voters, mm-hmm. voters of color, and young people, and two old white dudes are leading in the the, the polls in the primary. How, how did we get to this place? I mean, the the shorthand term has become electability, right? Which is a euphemism for people want a candidate or Democratic primary voters have sort of since the beginning said, we kind of want a candidate that can win over those, frankly, white Obama Trump voters in basically like six swing states. So people are being have been pretty frank since the beginning of the primary season when they're saying, it's not the time to, as Elizabeth Warren would say, you know, undergo a wholesale structural change. We just want someone who's kind of a transition figure who gets us back to, you know, a steady place. And and I think it's it's an interesting time in the party because there are, you know, to go back to the the, the Sanders-Biden split over foreign policy. I mean, a lot of people have said, look at Sanders' position on Israel. Look at, you know, it's very, there's maybe within the Democratic Party, almost two different parties, right? So the idea of AOC and Sanders articulating vastly different policy views on foreign policy, on domestic policy. And then you've got, you know, the Biden-Pelosi camp where 
it's progressive on Pelosi's part, but more establishment-leaning. And so um, I think that establishment-leaning sentiment is winning out among Democratic primary voters, um, in part because, you know, they're a little bit, I think, freaked out by electing, by nominating a woman in Elizabeth Warren or nominating someone who's gay and who's inexperienced in, in Pete Buttigieg. People just aren't sure about how the identity politics of those candidates are going to play out in those six swing states where white voters are very important. Alstead, you wrote um, about this with about in reflection to, of Bernie Sanders and why no other candidate, Elizabeth Warren early, was seen as that candidate who maybe could undercut Bernie's hold with more progressive voters, more liberal voters, with young voters, mm-hmm. or maybe Pete Buttigieg, somebody else who was new, shinier, different. And yet he's still held on, including winning over the Sunrise Movement mm-hmm. this week, which is young climate activists. How did that How did that happen? We've seen in the last five months the left wing of the party really coalesce around Bernie Sanders. I think that was not inevitable. At the beginning of the race, you had uh, a pretty open mind from these groups who were trying to push on their issues more frankly and, and weren't sure they were going to get in behind the specific candidate. It started to change once Working Families Party endorsed Elizabeth Warren that kind of shook up uh, the left-wing universe. And then you had a really critical month and a half. Um, Now, Warren, who was riding high at that point, comes under increased scrutiny around Medicare for All. Bernie Sanders gets the endorsement of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib um, as he's bouncing back from that heart attack. And then he starts doing little things. He embraces decriminalization uh, uh, at the border and, uh, and backs a temporary moratorium on deportations. Activist groups love that. He goes, uh, he starts talking more about uh, his rigid kind of day one Medicare for all vision. He started doing the things that made them love him in 2016 and doing it so explicitly that it kind of brought them back. And so you had uh, a Center for Popular Democracy, People's Action, and now Sunrise, the big kind of uh, uh, grassroots groups decide that, okay, we're going to take what Working Family says and get in this primary. We're just going to do it for Bernie over Elizabeth Warren. I think that's really true with young people. The polls tell us that young voters are with Bernie at like a 50% yeah. margin. That is that is incredible, seeing that there is millennials in the race, there's another progressive in the race, and they're still backing Bernie. I think it speaks to name recognition that he has from the 2016 race holdover, but also speaks to just the, the, the ideology of young folks. It wasn't about just coolness. It wasn't about viralness. It was about real progressive ideals and wanting big disruption. And he's still the candidate that promises the most of that. So Bernie is the OG liberal. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's no, no one can compare. Um, Claire, another thing that's happened this week on the Democratic front is candidates ruling out their big endorsements. So we talked about Bernie Sanders with the Sunrise Movement. Uh, Julian Castro coming in, endorsing Elizabeth Warren, came to New York. Yeah. Um, I think you were there there, at that event. And then Eric Garcetti, the Los Angeles mayor, endorsing Joe Biden. Do these mean anything? And why do do campaigns roll them out? What do they think they're going to get from some of these endorsements? I mean, I think Castro endorsing Warren is the most interesting one, in part because it's another candidate kind of coming out and saying, you know what? I talked to a lot of voters in all these states and they would say, uh, I like Elizabeth better. She's my number one choice. So some of it is just another candidate endorsing you. That's a big, big deal. I think with Warren, the Castro endorsement comes at an interesting time for her. She's a little bit flatlining in some of the polls. People are saying, yikes, I don't know if she's sort of shot herself in the foot with her healthcare flip flop and bringing on Castro um, as a surrogate, a pretty high profile surrogate. I mean, you know, 
out there at that rally in in, um, in Brooklyn, which is a very, very friendly crowd for Warren. Brooklyn has the kind of demographics that tend to like Elizabeth Warren. That area of Brooklyn, um, you know, the northern area of Brooklyn is a lot of white college educated voters. So they were out in force. You know, let's go back to Ted Cruz in the 2016 Republican primary. He was kind of struggling a bit in the primary and he decided, you know, he didn't expect Trump to come out of anywhere. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to make Carly Fiorina my VP nominee and you're going to know who the ticket is before we get to the convention. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility for Elizabeth Warren to say, hey, you know who could who could round out my ticket pretty well? Um, Mm. A younger man who is Latino, who puts some states in the southwest of the United States on the electoral map, it kind of increases my electability. Um, You know, I have a great surrogate out there in Nevada who can, uh, you know, rile up some votes. So I think for for Warren, I'm more interested in in it as a, ooh, is this her way to kind of jumpstart the last month before voting starts? Right. Well, we have a long way to go. I can't wait to continue to talk to you guys about it. Austin Herndon from The New York Times, Claire Malone from 538. Thank you guys both for coming in today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We now move on to Iran and to what the killing of General Qassam Soleimani means for domestic politics in Iran, as well as for the United States. With tensions now seemingly cooled, I asked the Nasi Kambanis senior fellow at the Century Foundation, to give us a lay of the land. From the Iranian perspective, these are are relatively long and slow-moving processes. They're not responding to public opinion the way we might imagine Mm -hmm. uh, our government does in the United States. In a lot of ways, they steer and and control public opinion, and uh, and they have their own internal debates, even within the hardliner community of Iran, about how how forward to lean and, and how much intervention to be doing in the region. Uh, and that's uh, something that's going to be, I think, litigated in, in the coming months. Uh, and for Iran, the big crisis uh, that predates the assassination is the sanctions. The U.S. has, among other things, has listed the Central Bank of Iran as a terrorist entity, which makes it nearly impossible for Iran to operate in the international economy. Uh, that is a major ongoing crisis uh, uh, internally for the country. That's part of what led to the protests. Uh, a few months ago that were the, the biggest news uh, from Iran until this biggest news. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, they're, what they want is to either normalize uh, or at least find a way to, to regain access to the international financial system, to global markets, to be able to sell their oil, to be able to function as a state uh, with nearly 100 million population and a lot of their own domestic, political, economic, and, and social needs. So can this, though, if if you are thinking about this from the perspective of the Trump administration or U.S. interests, can this actually bring the Iranians to the table to renegotiate the Iran nuclear deal? Does the killing of Soleimani and, and the, the sanctions, more pressure on sanctions, do much for that? In my read, I think no. There's There's been... I mean, we've had several years now of, of testing of, of Trump's hypothesis to, to the extent that this was a, a conscious uh, strategy. The, the sort of maximum pressure strategy of backing Iran into a corner, uh, it has in some ways uh, weakened Iran's technical ability to do certain things, but it hasn't affected even 
Uh, it hasn't even minimally affected their disruptive uh, use of proxies to destabilize the region. It has not changed their position on uh, any of the issues that the United States had in negotiations with them, from the nuclear file to the use of missiles uh, to to their involvement in Yemen and, uh, and other uh, places. In fact, what has happened decisively is uh, we we've broken out into a much more alarming uh, uh, state of of confrontation and. If the goal was deterrence, it has achieved the exact opposite. I mean, until a week ago, through all the cycles of conflict between the U.S. and Iran, one of the red lines that everyone had observed is the two nations had never directly attacked each other, even over more than a decade of, uh, of indirect conflict on the battlefields of Iraq. As of this week, we have a, a shocking uh, uh, shift to a new space in which the United States is is, is able and willing to, to directly kill senior Iranian government officials, and in which Iran is firing openly from Iran missiles at American targets. So this is the opposite of deterrence. Help us understand where Iraq fits into all of this and the call this week from the Iraqi prime minister to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to talk about withdrawing U.S. troops. So Iraq is, uh, it, it, this is one of the, the most tragic consequences of this, of this U.S. policy and this sort of needless uh, escalation. Iraq was, for the first time since the U.S. invasion in 2003, heading in a positive direction. Uh, the government uh, was, was sort of a weak government, but was trying to find, uh, find a way forward after finally overcoming ISIS. Uh, and there's this really uh, inspiring protest movement uh, that has been going on for months uh, that was, among other things, calling for Iraq to operate uh, as a real sovereign nation without taking orders from either Iran or the United States. Uh, so these were, in my view, very positive developments for Iraq. And, and I had been there as recently as the, as the fall uh, and saw the country uh, really poised to, to enter a new and, and healthier stage. Uh, now, What's happened is all, all that uh, potential has been sacrificed on the altar of uh, an American confrontation policy with, with Iran. The United States is now in a position where even those Iraqis who would like the United States to stay there and help them uh, fight ISIS and, and otherwise offer security uh, are unable, find themselves unable to defend the U.S. presence. Uh, so half the country is electrified against the U.S. Uh, and, and the half that would like the U.S. to stay if anything, is just a balancing hedge against Iranian interference, are politically unable to do it because they would look like traitors. Uh, so in all likelihood, the U.S. is either going to leave entirely or find its presence there uh, very, very, very minimal. Uh, and that's going to be great for ISIS, uh, which is in the process of trying to make a comeback. And it's going to be great for Iran, which throughout this time has been using its quite malign proxies and, and allied militias in Iraq uh, to do all kinds of nefarious things, including to, to to kill unarmed protesters who are calling for reform. Let's talk about what Rouhani has to be thinking about going forward when we're thinking about the disruption internally to the IRGC, as well as his own sort of internal, the internal political domestic concerns. It's really important to understand that there will be very little practical impact of this killing on Iran's capacity as a, as a state and as an international military actor. There's, of course, a great symbolic importance. Uh, Iran you know, feels its sovereignty has been 
has been pierced or trespassed. This, this you know, famous, well-loved figure was killed. Uh, but there's no operational capacity of Iran that's, that's going to be compromised or lost because of this killing. In terms of Iran's sort of political momentum, uh, I think the assassination helps uh, the hardest line factions of the leadership. The parts of the IRGC and Supreme Leaders constituency that were facing criticism for Iran's adventurism abroad, for you know, people in Iran asking, why are we spending money and time and treasure intervening in Yemen and Lebanon and Syria and Iraq when we can't afford fruit at home and gas prices are going mm-hmm. up? Um, all those constituencies inside Iran are today going to be either rallying around the flag or at, at a minimum, they're going to feel politically pressured to silence their criticism. Vanassi Kambanis, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Thanasi Kambanis is the senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Everybody's got a story about a piece of music. I thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's about pure experience, pure connection, pure joy. This song allowed me to survive. I'm Terrence McKnight with a new season of The Open Ears Project. Every Monday in under 20 minutes, you'll hear a different guest share their story. So you can start your week on the right note. Listen wherever you get podcasts. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. We move now from the dynamic within Iran in the Middle East to the one here at home. President Trump's decision to go ahead with the airstrike that killed Soleimani has reignited a debate in Congress about war powers. A declaration of war or an AUMF is what the Constitution requires. And drive-by notification, lame briefings like the one we just received, aren't adequate. It's stunning. And the president to say, oh, I inform you by reading my tweets. No, that's not the relationship that our founders had in mind. To play this game with the War Powers Act, which I think is unconstitutional, is that whether you mean to or not, you're empowering the enemy. And on Thursday, the House voted in favor of a War Powers resolution to limit the president's ability to take further military action against Iran. I sat down with Andrew Clevenger, a staff writer at CQ Roll Call, to find out what exactly the House resolution says and where we go from here. The resolution would require the White House to get congressional approval before it could initiate a major conflict with Iran. So essentially, ask permission from Congress before declaring war and entering into a kind of a third major conflict in the Middle East. But it was done via a concurrent resolution, and that measure does not have the force of law. So even if it does pass the Senate, which is uh, as yet undetermined, it it is not legally binding on the president. Right. So why do this at all? Why, if you're passing something that has no legal binding on the president, why take it up? Well, the, the messaging is very important. And I think what Congress is trying to say to the president is, look, you do not have a blank check to start a new war in the Middle East um, and think very carefully before you allow things to escalate to the point where we're committing a lot of troops and treasure to a new conflict. Is this also, though, a way for Democrats to be able to say, we put a check on the president, but we're not totally tying his hands? In other words, especially for Democrats maybe who are in more conservative districts, that they don't look as if they are saying we are trying to to limit the ability of a president to protect the country. I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is also 
very uh, complicated parliamentary procedure mm. and and what can get transmitted directly to the Senate versus what um, is open to a motion to recommit, which complicates things uh, a lot on the House side. On the Senate side, we know that there have been at least a couple of Republican senators who've been critical of the president's decision uh, in Iran. But it seems as if any resolution in the Senate is not going to get a majority support. Well, it doesn't take much to get a majority support. Um, When you have 47 Democrats and plus the two Republicans, you're already at 49. So you really only need two Republicans to join them in that measure. And, And last year, resolutions that would limit the president's uh, war power abilities in Iran and Yemen uh, passed the Senate. But they didn't do so with a, enough of a majority to override the veto. And the president vetoed the Yemen provision, right. which passed both chambers. And the vote on Iran was an amendment to the annual defense policy bill and it didn't meet the 60-vote threshold to be adopted and attached to that bill. Is there anything, whether in the House or the Senate, that could conceivably tie the president's hands in dealing with Iran going forward? It doesn't look like there's that kind of force of will or political will attached to these efforts right now. Because to really check the president in, in a practical sense, you would need veto-proof majorities And these measures just don't have that at this point. Congress is trying to communicate the sense of its its will. It's trying to claw back a little bit of authority when it comes to declaring war and having the the say over who can declare war in this country. But in practical terms, these measures aren't really going to change the state of play. Talk to us a little bit about the role that Congress is supposed to play in authority to declare war and... Congress has, in the not-so-distant past, reasserted its authority. In 1973, it passed the War Powers Resolution. And yet, it doesn't seem as if, at least in recent years, Congress has had much say at all in what the White House, what the president has decided to do militarily. It's pretty straightforward as laid out in the Constitution, right? right? So the president is the commander-in-chief, and he makes the decisions about what the military should do. But the Congress has the authority to raise an army and to fund it and to declare war against other nations. That model suited us pretty well in the, uh, when the, the country was new and, and for many years afterwards. But, but now we're not lining up against a, another nation and, and formally declaring war and, and shooting at each other uh, at the same time the way that we used to in the Revolutionary War at, in those days. Um, there are a lot of gray areas. I mean, if you do a, a drone strike, um, is that a declaration of war? Um, if you if you do a covert action that's counterterrorism, is that a declaration of war? We're not necessarily engaged in direct conflict nation to nation the way we we traditionally were back in in olden days. So so that's why the Constitution isn't as clear as it might be. In 1973, Congress said, look, you, you really need um, our permission to declare war. We're, we're clawing back this authority. Um, we want to make this, this clear that it, declaration of war and initiating these kind of conflicts should come from us. Further complicating things is a Supreme Court case that followed uh, in the 80s 
that said, well, Congress shouldn't really have veto powers and act in the negative. Congress acts in the affirmative by saying, here's what you can do. It doesn't really say, you know, you can't do this unless you come to us. So there's a Supreme Court case that says that. And there's an argument over whether you can't declare war unless you come to us, as described in the War Powers Resolution of 1973, is even constitutional. Then we have this thing called the AUMF, which this was in response to the attacks on 9-11. Explain what that is. So this is what the War Powers Resolution envisioned, is if there's an attack on America, as there was on 9-11, Congress comes together and and says, okay, let's act. Um, And that's via a vehicle known as an Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF. In 2001, Congress passed one uh, authorizing the Bush administration to go after uh, the perpetrators of 9-11 and, and in Afghanistan. In 2002, they, they passed another resolution authorizing the Bush administration to go after Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So that is fairly straightforward. But what Congress did not do is put a time limit on those. So those are, are for sort of open-ended authorizations that the Bush administration and, and frankly, every administration since have used to justify military actions all over the place. So at the end of the day, Andrew, do you think that there will actually be a vote in the House on either a new AUMF or getting it rid of it altogether? I think there will be a vote on what an AUMF for Iran should look like and and whether they want to require the administration to seek one before before escalation. Um, I think there will be a vote on possibly repealing the 2002 AUMF in the near future. But again, the the way forward for those is is pretty murky and and complicated by the fact that the Senate is unlikely to um, support either of those those steps in the same way that House is. It's further complicated by the political moment we're in, and that's with impeachment hanging over uh, the president. In terms of getting something through the Senate, that the the fact that a trial is pending further complicates things and makes it harder to get something passed because the second the articles of impeachment are transmitted, that takes priority for the Senate's time. So that's what the Senate will be doing for the foreseeable future until the trial is resolved. Andrew Clevenger, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me today. My pleasure for being here. Iran, impeachment, Iowa, all three are dominating the political agenda at this moment. But we also know we live in a time where news cycles have gotten shorter and shorter. Big groundbreaking events are replaced sometimes instantly by other ones. So none of us really know what is or isn't breaking through with voters. And interestingly enough, the more overwhelmed we get with information, the more likely it simply reinforces views we already hold rather than change opinions. But while it seems as if the Democratic primary has been going on forever, it's been about eight months, many Democratic primary voters are just starting to really pay attention. And so impressions they get in these next couple of weeks are a big deal and can determine who wins and who loses in these early contests. The show is produced by Amber Hall, Patricia Jacob, and Priscilla Alabi. 
Our board operator and engineer is Debbie Daughtry. Jay Cowett is our sound designer and director. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. And special thanks to Lee Hill. Thanks for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We'll see you next week.